What's up, strength coaches? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where we are making strength and conditioning not boring anymore. In today's episode, we have Mark Lewis on the show from the NFL Houston Texans. Mark, thanks for joining us, man, and go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners out there. Sure. Well, I appreciate you having me, Justin. Um, well, currently, I'm the director of Applied Sports Science uh, with the Houston Texans. Um, previously, uh, been at, was at Penn State as the associate director of performance science there. And uh, before Penn State, I was at Virginia Tech as the assistant director of strength conditioning for football and the director of sports science. A um, little bit of my, my background educationally, my PhD is in exercise physiology from Virginia Tech. I did a master's degree in epidemiology there as well. Um, the, a master's in exercise physiology and then a undergrad in uh, exercise science from Wake Forest University. And so um, very much physiology background, uh, then got more into the data world, um, the world of statistics uh, and applied epidemiology once I got in grad school. You and I talked before we filmed this uh, last week about it, but how do you feel that the world of strength and conditioning is evolving with too much technology in for the bad, right? Like it, it's very useful and we're going to talk about the usefulness of it, but we've also talked before where like it, the pendulum might've almost swung too far. No. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, a lot of times I, I find myself talking to a lot of strength coaches that are getting technology for the first time and a lot of times it's been given to them or provided to them whether they wanted to or not or whether they wanted to have it or not and um you're you're provided with technology before doing all the prep work um and uh you can get consumed and drowned in in data and uh to the point where that you're you're not even quite sure what you're looking at and so i think you know it's really important um you know prior to getting technology to really be under to understand what what gap in information um, are you filling? What, what questions do you have? This this tool or this instrument might be able to to help you answer, and and long term or downstream, I should say, how is how is this information going to be informing decision making? And so, um, being able to have all of those those questions answered and those box ch uh, checked, so to speak, prior to getting technology, I think right now there's just a you know, really, it's been this way in the last, you know, five to seven years as, as new technologies come out. And as more and more people have it, it's keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, we need Catapult because this team has it. Um, or we need Force Plates because this, you know, this team has it in our conference or whatever it is for recruiting purposes, if it's collegiate level. Um, I think being very intentional uh, and purposeful with new technology that you bring in into your into your setting, into your organization, I think is is really important. The other kind of area that gets overlooked a lot of times um, is uh, is the infrastructure to collect, manage, then analyze and report the data, because mm. that yep. those processes are time consuming. It takes certain skills that individuals may or may not have, and we always talk about it: the output or the the data that you're getting, that you're analyzing, that you're looking at, is only as good as the information being collected, the data being collected. So if you're not very, if you don't have people that know what they're doing and you haven't been very methodical in setting up how your data is going to be collected to make it as reliable as possible, um, to make sure that it's it's repeatable and scalable, if you're in the collegiate sector is another big one. Um, those, those factors are very important um, to consider prior to bringing new technology in because ultimately if you're, the data you're collecting 
is is not being collected in a way that's um, that's makes it reliable and high quality, and it's not something that's repeatable on a daily, weekly, whatever basis this is going to be uh, based on the questions you're answering, then the output you get from that that information isn't going to isn't going to be worth anything, and, and could potentially cause more issues um, than it actually helps. Amen. I mean, we said it, uh, and we're going to say it again here. Like, no data is better than bad data. And I feel like so many strength coaches out there probably have bad data because they just needed to get it collected and hurry up. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think sometimes there's this thought that, you know, okay, I have a set of force plates and we're going to do something simple like a counter movement jump. Okay, great. Um, that's a, that's a low skill, very simple test. Um, you know, force plates are fairly easy to manage. However, you know, you have to be very thoughtful about how you're going to do this. So what time are you going to collect this information? What's going to be the frequency with which you collect this information? The individual's testing. Um, are you going to have standard cues? Because we know from the literature that different cues result in different outputs. So if you've got, let's say you're, you're saying, okay, interns can do it. Okay, great. Well, they may be able to do it, but is there going to be a written out methods of how they're, what exactly they're going to say and making sure that they say the same thing to every individual and that every, everyone that's doing that is doing it the same way. Um, and if, and if so, great, but those are things you have to think about beforehand because based on the cueing, um, based on how that movement's being coached, uh, then, then you can have data that's, that's unreliable, um, session to session, uh, or even within the session. And so I think, you know, right there are, are several questions that you would, you as a, as a strength coach has, have to think about and consider prior to, to doing, doing something, something as simple as saying, we're going to do a counter movement jump on a force plate every week. And it's then not a, oh, go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say, and then the second part of that is you have the data. Taking a quick break from the show to tell you about our deal we have going on right now in December. If you sign up for Fundamentals Level 1, you will get one free year at Strength Coach Network. That's right. Sign up for Fundamentals, our 20-hour long-form education course that has information on every topic in strength and conditioning that will make you a better strength coach, regardless of the field that you're in. Not only if you're a strength coach, personal trainer, athletic trainer, physio, this is for you because all the education about progressions, regressions, motor learning, speed, agility, jumps, you name it, we have information in it. So sign up for Fundamentals, get a free year at Strength Coach Network. Click the link down below. Let's get back to the show. Then how are you going to manage it and how are you going to set up efficient processes to actually uh, analyze and report that information that doesn't that doesn't require you, you know, taking three hours out of your day to manually, you know, look at the, this information and, and go over the numbers and understand and, and you know, decide what metrics you're going to look at um, and, and the processes of how of how you're going to determine selecting those metrics. Yeah. Not like you said, getting back to the methodology of it, what's going to be the prescribed amount of rest in between each rep if you're doing multiple reps? Right. And then within that, like, I think that's what can make the research world in athletics so difficult is if you need to have these clean methodologies. But if you're trying to get exercise and testing done in the middle of exercise, well, they're not just going to stand around and do nothing. They might go do another set of something and come back to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of integrating your testing or your monitoring into your into your training. It should be. 
um, trainings, testing, testings, training. It should be, you should be able to do that. Not with force plates, with Nord boards, with 1080s, whatever technology. And it should be integrated, in my, in my opinion. Um, otherwise, I think you, you run into a whole other host of issues. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I think integrating it into training is great, but you, that's where you're, you have to, to think about, you know, what's going to be, what questions am I answering? How's this information going to help do that? And then what's the best way to collect this information to answer those questions? And then being able to, to set it up because that's going to impact how, how many trials you're doing, the reps you're doing, when you're doing it within the training session, um, how, the frequency with which you're, you're doing it, um, and all of those, all of those um, different considerations uh, need to be thought about. And I, I think that's, you know, the methodology to what, to, to your point, I think when you get into that, it, it should be recipe like a cookbook. Like you should have, this is the way we do a counter movement jump. This is the way we do a drop jump. This is the way we do a single leg counter movement jump. All of those things from the queuing to the setup to the rest periods um, should all be done. And, and the warm up or whatever you're doing, like if you decide I want to do a counter movement jump to look at very popular right now is okay. We're going to, we're going to do a counter movement jump once a week, every, every Monday, Tuesday to look at neuromuscular fatigue during the season to help you know, intervene if we need to on, on, you know, guys that maybe are, are experiencing a lot of residual fatigue uh, outside of their norms. Okay, great. But with, with that though, you need to understand, okay, well, we need to place it at a time that's going to be repeatable every week to be able to compare a Monday to a Monday over time and to be able to know a guy. Cause if one day you do it after movement prep, you know, before a, a main lift and the next, the next, uh, week you have to flex it to okay well some things change we're going to do it at the end of the lift that I mean those numbers aren't going to really be comparable you're not comparing apples to apples depending on what you did leading up to that within that lift and putting it at the end of the lift versus putting it at the beginning of the lift or before a primary movement or after a primary movement um, I mean I can tell you right now that if you put something as simple as putting the counter movement jump before a primary lower body lift or after that lower body lift is going to increase the coefficient of variation of your numbers within that within that session. And so if you did three jumps before the primary lift and then three jumps after the primary lift, same day, same everything, those numbers, the variation within that's going to be much higher um, versus if you did if you keep if you do it before and then you always do it before, that variation is going to be so much lower. But just the placement of before after one lift can have a lot of impact on the variation and the air you're seeing. And the reason that's important is because the more air you have, the more difficult um, it is to actually see real change when it does happen. Amen to that. How do you then best practice? How do you best recommend practice to the coaches out there that heard you and they're like, Oh, well, what should I do? Sure. I, you know, in an example of monitoring neuromuscular fatigue, I would determine where within your week is it most appropriate? Everyone's a little different. Some people, you know, lift and train a day after a game. Some people do it two days after, just whatever your schedule is, what's most appropriate. And then within that session, I would select a time where that's where they're warmed up and they're prepared, but they're they're They don't have a lot of acute fatigue. So before your primary movements, but after they've been prepped with what's whatever your, your, framework within your session is like generally it's going to you're going to be doing some type of 
you know, soft tissue work into ground-based stuff, into walking, into more higher speed, incorporating more velocity into the movement prep. And then you're doing some type of really specific warm up um, to whatever your primary movement is that day. That point is generally the best because you've got them warmed up. You've got, you've got them ready, potentiated from a neuromuscular standpoint, warmed up, ready to go. And then that's a good time to be able to put that test in where there's not a lot of acute fatigue, but yet they're prepared, they're warmed up and then keeping it there every week. And if you have to make alterations to your training program to really touch that last in order to try to make it comparable. And so, cause a lot of times people, if you don't, a lot of times coaches, they look at that as like a, if I need to move something, I can always move that wherever and plug it in. And, and in my way of thinking, it should actually be the opposite because what's up strength coaches taking a quick break away from the show to let you know about our membership site. Not only do we at Strength Coach Network put out the Cheeky Midweeky, but we have a membership site where you gain access to a video library and a members-only forum. Inside the video library, you will have access to over 170 different lectures, which equals over 400 hours of content. Inside of these content, it is every sport you could think of and every topic in strength and conditioning. In our members-only forum, we have career advice and we have topics in strength and conditioning where coaches ask each other questions and we help each other inside the network. You can try the network out for 24 hours for $1 if you are not a member. Click the link down below and you will be able to check us out. You know, you're, you're not going to see a, a, as much of a variation or much of a, an effect on a primary lift or whether you do a counter movement jump before or after. But if you do that, but if, if you're, let's say, a squat, for example, if you're doing a squat uh, and, and, and you do the jump before or after, that's going to have more impact on that jump on those jump metrics than that jump is going to have on any, on you moving that weight on a squat. And so like you're testing, once you set up, like, this is where I believe is most appropriate to place this test, this calorie movement jump test. Okay. I'm going to leave it there. And that's going to be the last thing I try to touch if I need to move anything around for time constraints or whatever it is. And you have to, but that also speaks to how much you have to value that information to help inform your decision making yeah no how about anything within maybe some of the hamstring stuff do you like to put it in pre post how do do you recommend it for that well there's trade-offs to everything and and i think when you get into the world of of testing hamstrings and you're dealing with field-based sports where you have uh where high-speed running sprinting is a big big part of what they're going to be doing you have to be very careful where you where you place um, different types of isolated hamstring uh, testing. Nordic, in particular, the Nordic curl. Um, we, uh, I, I've been, a, I've been places that have done a lot of different, where we've done a lot of different types of testing. I'm a big fan of uh, isoprone, uh, yeah, long lever isoprone. Two legs at the same time or one at a time? Uh, I did both at the same time is the way I've always done it. Um, then basically from. From that, you know, I think one, the data is really reliable. Um, it's not, it doesn't cause as much damage or soreness as, as generally what you'll get from the Nordic. Um, and it seems to be, uh, again, just from, from being able to have them, um, have the athletes in, in those positions. Generally, uh, you will have less complaints, feedback from your athletes about, um, you know, any type of discomfort they might have around the knees. That's something in, fo- in the football world you'll tend to get with the Nordic. I, fa- I found generally you'll get about 10% of your athletes that complain on doing Nordics on the Nord board from getting some type of pain where around their knees, um, or around the tendon. Um, 
again, like just you always have to consider what your athlete that trade off of like, okay, if if I can do a test that test that gives me the same type of information, my athletes might prefer it. Um, mm. You know, then that's that's always got to be a consideration as well. Um, so, uh, so I found the ISO prone to be great with that. Um, and then, uh, um, and then I can actually send you a video of, of kind of what, how I do that as well. If, 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 and you can add that to the information in terms of the setup and what that's like in terms of testing. Mm-mm. No, it's interesting. You brought that up because that was part of our testing protocol. If somebody had an acute injury, we would just, okay, we can't ice, we can't do a full Nord board, but we're like, Hey, we could do a prone. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and put your prone before we're actually Absolutely. able to do a Nord board. And that kind of became like, all right, whenever anybody would come in as part of their initial intake, they would do a prone and they would do a Nord board. So we would have it right then and there. And we'd just be able to have those moving standards of that. So it was interesting to hear because I was also playing around with the prone or the ISO 30 and like, for me, trying to come up with like without pulling out a goniometer, how to make sure that you were really getting right or like and then their hips wouldn't shoot up in the air, like getting it in yeah. the right spot. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think the ISO prone to your point, the ISO prone, much easier to get the athlete in the correct position. Like you're just there. Yeah, exactly. And and they'll, they're less they're uh, less prone to using their um, uh, their hips in that. And so um, generally the way that I coach it is have them set up and really have them brace their core like a front plank. And uh, with that, they'll brace their core, which tends to limit their hip movement, even if they, they, even if they want to shoot their hips, especially if they've been, especially, um, you know, depending on if they're used to moving or testing, doing a Nordic curl, like being in the stationary position and just contracting, pulling your, your heels towards the ceiling, contracting, um, little different. They want to, they tend to want to move their body. And so if you're going to an ISO, uh, a lot of times just giving them like, this is a front plank position and brace your core, um, get in a good tight position. Generally they won't move their hips. And then from that, it's a three, two, one, pull, pull, pull in terms of the, the cueing and consistent throughout. Um, and then just always tell them, uh, in the setup, you know, we're, you know, heels to the ceiling, uh, in terms of just like the, an external type cue. As you mentioned it with the queuing and standardization of whatnot, did you guys or, or do you recommend that people do queue effort during it? And then if so, do you guys just standardize like, hey, you only say X or would you say, you know, one of three different things and you say them at different times? How, how do you best recommend that? Sure. I mean, we, we and, and I'm saying we as in everywhere I've, I've been, like I've kind of had similar it's kind of been the same way from Virginia Tech, Penn State, everywhere I've been in terms of how we queue and, and kind of um, the setups there and these different tests that, that are utilized. But it's, you know, um, the assumption, and then you communicate this with your athletes, assumption is you're giving maximal effort on these tests. The information is only as good as the effort you get because that is an assumption you, that's made that's when you're jump testing, when you're doing these tests, because otherwise – the information's you know not good there. I will say that um, you know something like a, Nor- a Nordic curl on a Nord board. That's I have less concern about effort there than I would would like an ISO prone. Um, but at the same time, uh, if there was an effort issue, generally that's going to show up in your variation. And I look at variation within the the day and also over time. And um, every now and then you'll get an athlete with a higher variation and you know that might speak to some days not being consistent in terms of effort 
Um, but at the same time, if you're seeing if you're seeing coefficients of variation, intercession coefficients of variation of four, three, five percent, um, you know, they're most likely given max effort because uh, and not being selective about some days giving little effort, some days giving, they're probably giving pretty good effort because those are really good numbers to have in terms of the uh, limited amount of error or variability there, I should say. Speaking of variability, I'm not as up to date on the research with it now. What is acceptable within the research for asymmetry if you're looking for something like what's the number that is now all of a sudden causing alarm? Because I feel like it used to be 8%, but then it's like 12. Like it's, it seems like moving goalposts of what is and is not acceptable. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give you uh, the best answer. It depends Um, because there, there shouldn't be, there should not be a threshold um, that you're looking at uh, just a, a blind absolute threshold. And I think um, those of uh, the listeners that are up on Chris Bishop's work, Matt Jordan's work, um, I think uh, something Something that's been pretty pretty clear clear is that that you have to consider really a couple of different factors before um, saying that an athlete has an asymmetry, uh, an inner limb imbalance of physical capacity. So first of all, you have to consider the variation. So let's say you make your cut all, 8%. 8%. Well, if the coefficient of variation of average peak force on the left limb is 7% and the right limb is 11%, then you, the coefficient of variation of one of your limbs is higher than the, your threshold. So even if they did have an asymmetry of, let's say, 9%. Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button so that way you get notifications of when more content like this gets released. So, Click that like and subscribe button. And with that, let's get back to the show. That's, that's not going to, that may not, may or may not be real. You don't, so it has to be, it has to depend on one, the coefficient of variation of left and right limb. And if you're looking at average force, um, which that's what most people look at, then it's the average force coefficient of variation, left limb, average uh, force coefficient of variation of right limb. And your percent of asymmetry has to be greater than both left and right limb coefficient of variation of average force. And then the other piece is directionality needs to be established. And so a lot of times you'll see athletes that flip flop. And so there'll be, you know, 6% left, left, left limb uh, deficit one week, then there'll be, you know, 9% right limb on the next week. And then if you do not have an established directionality, then I think, uh, you know, you're, you don't know if that's really a deficit or something that Matt Jordan terms performance variability. Um, athletes using different strategy, but that's not the same thing as having a true deficit in physical capacity within a limb. And so I think that's important to understand as well. Then the final piece of it is you have to understand that depending on the sport, the position group, there's going to be different population specific asymmetries that are there that are not a bad thing necessarily, um, but you, not a bad thing, not a good thing, but exists within that population based on the skills of their, of their sport or position. Again, depending on the sport, depending on if your team sport position group. And so those have to be considered. And so um, you, you really have to, if you're going to look at a magnitude threshold, you have to one first see if they have an established inner limb symmetry, asymmetry in their testing using the coefficient of variation of each limb. 
understanding that, okay, is it, is it consistent with directionality? So over time, is it always left limb and it's consistent? If you're, you don't need to do a statistical analysis, if, if you were, then I would say to run a, a Kappa coefficient to understand the magnitude of agreement over time. Um, but otherwise, if you have the information visualized in a graph longitudinally, you can, under, you can see pretty clearly, okay, is every single time, let's say their right limb between, you know, is their right limb always the one that's below over time and you've tested consistently over time, um, then yeah, you can say, okay, that's directionality. They're not flip-flopping back and forth every week. And then, so those things have to be considered within the individual. Then if you're gonna, the final piece is compare them to their population and see if this is outside the norm of their population and then understand that within the context of the sport, the technical skills required, um, and all of those things. If, you know, in football, it's like you've got your specialists. You know, obviously, you know, you're going to see things that are quarterbacks, depending if they're right or, or left arm and what foot they're planning on if we're talking about lower body asymmetries. You know, there's going to be so many factors. Um, in baseball, pitchers, are they right-handed, left-handed? Um, like there's going to be so many factors like that. So population and position specific is important. And then the, and then if you're looking at change of, in asymmetry over time, because you maybe, maybe you've established they have an asymmetry and it's something you want to address. Let's say you're dealing with a wide receiver and he does a lot of high speed running and you see a 16% asymmetry left directionality. Let's say it's left limb, you know, there is coefficients of variation on each limb or below that and you say this is a real asymmetry and that magnitude it concerns me and there's established directionality it's clear that this person has a left limb uh deficit in hamstring force production and i think i should intervene so let's say you intervene you do oscillatory isometrics you do whatever your your program is you do some some single leg work you're eccentrically loading um eccentric rfd type loading whatever it is okay my intervention point and i would say a standardized intervention of something you've already come up with on a card and can attest the effectiveness of your intervention okay fine you see change in that asymmetry we go back to the same thing in that if you're testing that change has to be greater than the coefficient of variation to know that the change was real and not just error. And so let's say the change was 6% and the coefficients of variation were 9%, 11%. Well, you don't know if that was real change or just error in your measurement or normal biological variability. So, the, so that change has to be greater for you to be like, okay, yes, this was real change and this asymmetry was, was addressed and, and reduced and I know that because of the uh, my my change was greater than the variability that you see in the in the measurement. <clears throat> Hearing you talk about that made me think about how often in research there is a control group, but typically within athletics there never is a control group. How can we work within that in athletics to make our testing better? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think. Uh, it's really fundamental in a lot of the things I've mentioned. I, I think first and foremost, we have to know is we have to be able to standardize how we do things as well as well as possible. So things we've talked about, like having a method for how we test so that we know that when we're testing, it's as high quality as like as low variabilities we can get, because ultimately we want to detect a lot. Athlete monitoring comes down to one big piece that it comes down to is detecting real change when it occurs and understanding the magnitude of that change. We always 
so much of the discussion when I talk to folks is meaningful change, you know, and which if you look at that, how it's defined and, you know, whether it's Mike McEwen or whoever, resources you go to how that's defined is the, the smallest amount of practical importance or clinical importance, okay, which is generally tied to some type of effect size, generally 0 0.2 being the smallest if you're, if you're in that world. And so, um, all right, fine. Well, you have to understand, can we detect real change? And that comes down to, can we collect reliable information that's going to be able to tell us when things change? Okay, whether it's fatigue, whether you want to test, if you're a strength coach and you're testing, I want to see, did my guys get faster and more powerful? Great. That's awesome. That's thing, that's information that, that you should have, but it's going to come down to how well can you collect that information to be able to see, did they get better over whatever block you're looking at or whatever time period you're looking at? If you're doing pre, mid, post over the course of a spring, and or winter training football let's keep it in football world you're going winter training preparing for spring ball and you want to know are your guys getting better based on your program and the and the um the outputs that you're trying to get from your program then you're going to test across these phases and you're going to look in at specific metrics based on what you're trying to improve in that specific block during that specific microcycle mess of whatever your program looks like and so with that is going to be how well can you test that? Are you, if you're doing, you know, 20 yard accelerations and jumps, are they giving maximal effort? Are you, are you collecting that information at, at a time period that's the same and comparable across each of those time points? Are you queuing them the same way to get the same type of output from them in terms of the mechanics and in terms of their effort, in terms of how they're performing the actual movement, the actual task. And so I really, I think that's what it boils down to because we're never going to have a world where we get the control group. We're never going to have, it's never going to be perfect. And that's, that's, I saw this the other day. I, I'm not sure who tweeted it out to give credit, but I saw this somewhere. It was like applied sports science is really, you know, trying to, um, to bring information or, and I'm paraphrasing here, bring information or bring some clarity in a chaotic environment. What's up, strength coaches? Want to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about our sponsor, Team Builder. Team Builder is your one-stop shop for online training platform needs as a coach. With Team Builder, you're going to be able to program for your athletes, whether they're in-person or remote. Using Team Builder, not only will you be able to program for your athletes, but there are special features such as the leaderboard and locking training with wellness questionnaires. With the leaderboard, you can have an exercise performed that day, whether it be a lift, a sprint, or a jump, and scores can be updated in real time and projected on a TV in the training. Wellness questionnaires can be used at the beginning of training, and your athletes will have to fill them out prior to being able to train. This ensures that as a coach, you're being able to collect quality data before the athletes train. So, if you're interested in Team Builder, click the link down below and find out more information let's get back to the show and the complexity and the and the chaos within our environment is is what makes our job so fun it's problem solving and trying to tease things out when nothing's nothing's the in the most ideal or optimal state nothing is perfect you're not in the laboratory people are not going to do exactly what, like you're trying to come out and get information to help inform decision making in a chaotic environment where variables are constantly changing and you don't know what's going to be thrown at you day to day. And that's what makes your job. That's what drives you nuts, but that's also what makes it fun. And, and you're coming in there like, what problems do I get to solve today? What, how do I get to, to try to help prepare, prepare our athletes better? How do I help serve our athletes better? How do I help 
bring information to coaches in a in a more efficient and effective manner in this environment that's what makes it in my opinion anyway and for me at least that's what that's what i i think makes it so fun and and challenging no one you know you don't you love you love being in those challenging environments where you're trying to to figure things out and you're in your problem solving and you're you're trying to and from a scientist standpoint like i've been in labs like doing you know, I've been in the perfect laboratory settings and clinical settings in my doctoral training and my, you know, um, in, in graduate school and things like that. And I love it. But I what makes it this this setting so fun is that you're trying to assess the effectiveness of something you're trying to to pick out change. You're, you're doing testing in in non-optimal conditions and you're problem solving. You have to think outside the box. You have to think with how can I bring scientific scientific method? And how can I bring ideal testing and measurement into a, into a situation where it's, you know, you're out on a field in the rain trying to collect information. <laughs> like, I mean, I've, I, there's been all kinds of uh, thinking back to things like, you know, and it's, I just, I, I, that's what I love or a part of what I love about, about, you know, being an applied sports scientist. But, <clears throat> for anybody, sorry, I, I went off on a little, no, I went off on good. a little, please don't <laughs> apologize. Not at all. That's why we had you on the show. Uh, for anybody that is, you know, new into the field and they're starting to learn more and more about this uh, applied sports science roles, what would be some suggestions for anybody that wants to dive down that rabbit hole and do more and more with it? Like, because it is becoming more and more, um, more and more of these positions are getting hired. How do you recommend somebody go down that path? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, I will say one thing. There's not like a one way. I think looking at you know, my colleagues across, um, you know, the NFL, different sports, applied sports science, like come from many different backgrounds, whether it's some are strength conditioning coaches like myself. I was a strength conditioning coach. I came from more of a strength conditioning background in that I was getting academic training, but I did strength conditioning internships mentored under some older school strength coaches um, that technology was a stopwatch. And, um, <laughs> and I learned so much from them, though, that I think still helps me today uh and it was nothing from how operational technology but just from like understanding uh how to deal with with things that aren't ideal and how to deal with athletic environments and sporting environments and how to integrate things within uh strength conditioning so i credit learning a lot from those individuals but i i think um if you have an interest in in applied sports science you what, what's what's great is that People think you need technology or you think you need a catapult or whatever it is to, to do sports science or whatever. And that's just not the case. So I think whatever setting you're at, you can start understanding and applying. I mean, if you're a strength coach, you're, you're a type of sports scientist. You're There's already incorporating sports science, understanding the physical demands of your sport and trying to prepare your athletes for that. So I think first and foremost, like trying to um, – uh, uh, apply different concepts, measure things within your own environment and bring more of the scientific processes into whatever environment you're at. Great resources are obviously there's um, the NSCA Essentials for Sports Science text. It's kind of a, it's a good base manual of just giving you a very broad understanding of different concepts and things within um, sports science broadly. Um, um, uh, monitoring athletes performance Mike McEwen um, is another excellent foundational textbook that goes over the basics of statistics the basics of um, 
of uh, load response monitoring, um, concepts like that. Um, so those are some great resources. I think just um, reaching out to people too, like there's a lot of great applied sports scientists out there. I think reaching out and just uh, having conversations. Um, if you wanna, if, if this is where you want your career to go and you're, let's say you're a strength conditioning coach now, or you're an intern in strength conditioning or whatever it is, um, or you're a student uh, in strength conditioning, I think really being able to start learning broadly across a lot of different areas uh, initially. So learning SNC. So if you're learning a little bit about basic statistics, understanding how, you know, what's for all the way from like, we know, you know, okay, basics of understanding means and standard deviations. So measure measures of central tendency and variability, and then understanding like basic regression, um, understanding some of those basic techniques, understanding research methods is a big one that I think oftentimes doesn't get discussed as much. So, um, you know, basic research methods, textbooks that uh, just understanding, um, you know, essentially how to measure, test and measure, uh, and then and how to establish appropriate uh, applied research questions, and then how to um, go about answering those in a way that provides the best information. And I can give, you know, I can provide, I don't know if you have show notes, I could potentially give you some references if people are interested that they could look up. Um, but then also from there, I would say um, there's a lot of great internships, a lot of great experiences available um, to uh, now that weren't there even three years ago um, to where you can get great experiences uh, in terms of interning. I would say that if you're at a university or, or at a place where let's say you're a strength coach at a place that doesn't have a sports scientist, um, I would just start doing sports science where you're at. And um, I, I know that that was, that was a little bit of how I, I got my first full-time job in sports science was I was basically doing my PhD and, and, um, and started being a sports scientist at the, at, you know, at Virginia tech. And I was literally going door to door to people. I was interning as a strength conditioning coach and ended up, but I, so I could coach on the floor, which is a great way. If you are a strength coach, you can already bring value in a, maybe a more understood way. But then if you can find that you're bringing value in other ways, that's sometimes how you, how you get that first job is it's created because there are a lot of jobs out there, but a lot of places don't have them. And a lot of times there's that, that first position they have is created out of a situation where someone starts doing the work and then eventually it gets recognized um, and it gets titled that generally a place isn't a university. I'll speak specifically to universities. Generally, they aren't creating the role and then doing a national search for that individual in that first sports science position. Most of the positions that have been created um, in collegiate environment, again, I'm speaking specifically collegiate here, has been, have been created because someone started doing the work. And then that became a dual titled role that became, they transitioned into that role, whatever the case was, um, as opposed to, oh, we need this position from administration and then they do a national search and go hire someone. Um, and so I think that's, that's a big one, wherever you're at starting to do the work, because um, that's, that's a, that's, there's no better way to start in my opinion um, with that. And then finally, I would say that, that um, you know, being, um, you know, just uh, being up to date in, in research across a lot of different areas um, 
and understanding uh, different concepts from different areas. I, you know, I love strength conditioning. I love weightlifting, but if I live just in the, the weightlifting strength training world, uh, it wouldn't, it, it would ultimately, um, make me very narrow minded in my view. So I think being reading across a lot of different research in different disciplines and understanding whether it's biomechanics, physiology, sports psychology, um, reading, reading literature, um, regarding different instruments and testing, um, rehabilitation type stuff. Like, uh, I think that really helps round you out, um, and give you a lot of great, a great insight and, um, into different areas and, and create uh, linking information across different disciplines because ultimately as a sports scientist, you might be housed in strength conditioning, whatever the case is, but to be, to be really good at your job, in my opinion, you have to really be able to go across disciplines, um, work with different people. You have to be very involved with sports medicine. You have to understand yeah. um, tissue specific healing. You have to understand the physiology behind injury. You have to understand um, different types of testing, which is linked back to S&C, understanding what types of exercises are going to be linked to different types of stresses and understanding what's going to be appropriate at different time points um, to work with athletic trainers and, and, and medical doctors and physical therapists to understand what tests might be appropriate based on their prescription. And then ultimately what that what that more what those more advanced methods are going to be like when you're returning that athlete and they're farther along the continuum, more towards being returned um, to play, you want to return them to performance. Um, and you ultimately, you want to make them more robust and resilient than what they were when they got injured in an ideal, in an ideal world. And so under having a good understanding knowledge base around different types of, of, of strength conditioning concepts, advanced programming concepts, um, different types of, of exercise selection around eccentric loading, isometrics, different types of, of joint angles and what types of stressors those create um, to ultimately give an appropriate stimulus based on what that athlete needs. So being able to kind of interact across all these bases, I think you really be able, you really need to, to have a, an understanding um, in several disciplines and be able to understand and have a, a, a I would say an, a, an, an adequate, at least entry level um, knowledge base around best practices and literature in these different areas so that you can at least have those conversations. Um, and there's still times I'll go in and I'll have a conversation with a, a physical therapist or an MD or whoever it is. And, and they'll say something and I'll immediately go look something up afterwards. And say, okay. Some, another area for learning. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. I mean, amen to that. If you're not having those moments, you're in the wrong rooms, right? Like, I'll, exactly. Oh man. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's why I love working where I work now. Cause I, man, like I'm surrounded by people that are just incredible practitioners in different areas. And I, every single day there's a conversation or an interaction I have with one of my colleagues where I'm like, they say something that makes me think, and I'm like, man, I gotta either look that up, read more about that, understand that better. Um, I, I really believe what she said is, is 100% accurate. Like you got to, you got to be in the rooms where, where you're learning, where you're challenged, um, where you're asked questions that sometimes you just don't know the answer to you. Like, Hey, like, I'm not quite sure. And it challenges you to get better in an area or you get challenged in your, in your setting of like, how can we better serve this athlete? There's something that, that, that maybe someone brings up that's, that's appropriate based on that circumstance. And you don't know much about it 
or you or you can look at alternatives for it like you being in those environments um with people that are experts in different areas i think um that it's really the iron sharpens iron type of mentality of like you're going to get questions there's gonna be times you feel stupid and there's going to be times where you're humbled but that those are the environments that are fun those are environments that you look back on 10 years down the road and you're like man like i got better when i was there <laughs> speaking of looking back 10 years if we take a look into strength and conditioning five ten years ago it's it's completely evolved like you said with these new high performance roles and working all together where can you envision the next five ten years of this thing going in sports performance and human performance and whatever word you want to use yeah um i mean i, I think i would say that we've seen this transition over the past i'll say five to seven years where now strength coaches are expected, especially um, especially at like Power Five universities, but I, I think all the way across, really, like strength coaches are expected to have a a different skill set than they did again five to seven years ago. Like you're, there's you see continually see job postings with um, places hiring strength coaches where they want them to have some kind of knowledge base around st basic statistics. Um, basic reporting measures, and it's constant. I remember seeing um, the first time it was real evident is I, I remember I was in grad school and West Virginia football was hiring as an assistant strength coach, and I saw the posting. I was, you know, and and what stuck out at me is that it was it, they wanted the, the person to have a, uh, a uh, an understanding of statistics, and they wanted them to be able to have an understanding of, of a data visualization. I'd never seen that on a strength conditioning coach posting before. And so it was interesting. And then uh, I just remember that was like the first time, and I don't remember what year that was, but it, it was several years ago. And ever since then, if you look, like more and more strength coaches are expected to have an understanding around that. In fact, there are strength coaches that if you're not adapting now to at least having, and it's having an understanding to do it and or having the understanding that you have to bring people in around you. Like if you're a head strength coach, now you're seeing, strength coaches that are bringing people around them that, Hey, if I don't have this skill set, I need to learn it at least a basic enough amount or uh, learn a basic um, fundamental skill set here, or at least be able to evaluate these areas so that I can hire people around me that know these things. And then they can help me incorporate whether it's catapult, whether it's force place, um, because places that are hiring are wanting to incorporate sports science technology. And I credit one of my mentors, um, Ben Hilgart, great example. Like he's, you know, off the joke in strength tree, like exceptionally bright, great coach. Um, he's, uh, he's an individual that he continually adapts and gets better. And even though it was completely outside his element, like being able to learn about different forms of technology. Um, I remember sitting in his office once a week, we'd go over just like small little things so that he was learning. He had me and like he, he didn't need, but he wanted to learn just so that he could learn and keep adapting. And I think that that's important. And that, I remember that was always, um, you know, I had so much respect for him and, and for the fact that he was always getting better, even though it was so far outside his realm of, of of knowledge and, and and what he had done previously and i think you're seeing more and more of that of coaches that are adapting to learning more of those so i think moving forward you're going to see more and more coaches um 
or more and more positions requiring strength coaches to have skill sets around different areas, technology, um, statistics, data visualization in some ways, um, and an understanding and a, and a want to incorporate those into their program. Um, the, the other piece I think um, that you'll see, and, and you're seeing it now, is I think more and more programs will move to high performance models where you have strength conditioning falling under a high performance umbrella with sports science as a way to help incorporate more data and information into um, into uh, the decision making processes. And so I, you're seeing that now in the NFL. Um, I you're, you're going to you're seeing forms of that in the college environment in different ways. Um, Penn State's a great example of that now with their new high performance program. Um, and, uh, you know, Josh Nelson, buddy of mine, I was obviously up there with him, like his kind of role where he's essentially kind of a high performance director of Penn State football. Um, his, his the, the way he incorporates information, there is an applied sports scientist there that collects the day to day, week to week information and all that. Um, but these high performance roles in the NFL, um, you're seeing that uh, whether it's the Jets, um, you know, whether it's the 49ers, Ben Peterson, Jess Brad Weiss. Um, the Carolina Panthers, Andrew Altoff, like it, you're seeing that more and more um, here in Houston with Matt Van Dyke. It's where it's you're having high performance directors with strength conditioning, nutrition, sports science falling under them. But ultimately, how that functions a lot of times is based around a way to help incorporate more data and information and across different disciplines to help holistic to help holistic athlete development and to help incorporate information um, into a larger vision around performance and physical preparation. And so um, I think that's been driven a lot by sports science and technology, uh, why these are required now. We're used to it was the head strength coach ran everything in terms of performance in nutrition and really everything. I mean, used to the nutrition was basically under strength conditioning and it, and, and that was, I mean, I'm speaking more specific football world here. Um, but, you know, that's, We've evolved, and I think you'll continue to see that to where I think eventually you'll see collegiate football running more towards having like a high performance type director um, with strength conditioning and sports science falling under them. Um, because as these departments grow too, I mean, you're seeing a lot of of college football teams now used to you say one sports scientist. Now you're seeing them hire assistant directors of sports science for one for just football. Oklahoma is a good example of that. Brandon Stone doing a terrific job there. Um, just just added that uh, an assistant director of sports science there over the summer. Um, and you're seeing that happen more and more places now. Um, so as these departments grow, you're going to I think you're going to kind of evolve to this world where you get high performance director to help bring people together, facilitate information across sports med, S&C, um, practice design and planning and to help create more holistic athlete development and physical preparation within a overall sport performance type vision uh, long term. And so um, those are the two biggest ways I think uh, that I see this, the field of area strength conditioning evolving over the next, you know, let's say 10 years. <clears throat> no, that's very concise. And I feel like you almost need all of those people working together, then funneling it to one person. So that one person can then almost translate that to work and talk with the coach because otherwise a sport coach is going to feel overwhelmed. Like when do I actually get to make a decision about the team that I coach? And it's not just driven by, Oh, this number or this number or that number, because 
we've all seen coaches that get overly consumed by a certain number and they don't look at who the athlete is, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think, uh, I, yes, absolutely. I think that's where a lot of this too is, you know, you're, we talk about force plates and we talk about these specific forms of technology. These, you're getting a lot of information from a lot of areas that ultimately need to be um, understood within the, the context of the whole athlete and their trajectory. And not only within, there was a great paper that actually just came out from Joe Club on key performance indicators where also she focused on talking about process goals and the process of, of athlete development over time as opposed to just being focused on one number or a physical key performance indicator or checkpoint. And I think that's that's key because I think being able to incorporate all this information over a longer period of time and help uh, paint a better picture around the athlete and within an appropriate context ultimately is going to serve the athletes better um, to help be able to make sure they're getting what they need. And it's not just being looked through the lens of power, strength, any one number, and that they're actually getting served better with, with um, a longer term plan in, in mind. What would be your biggest piece of advice for a coach that is getting new technology? We'd be like, hey, these are the first three things. Like, make sure you're not doing this. Like, anybody listening right now, like, okay, hey, I just got something or I'm thinking about getting something. What would be your kind of like three do's and three don'ts? And the reason that I asked this question is that was always a question I had um, to any – whenever I was on an interview, like, hey, what's an example of three things for this role to be great, three to be bad – and I'd also just check in with the head coach every now and again, like, hey, what am I doing good? What am I doing bad? So I always like to use that as a barometer for anybody that does something new. Like, what do they got to make sure they do? What do they got to make sure that they never do? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I think first first and foremost, you have to make sure, and I'll kind of pair these together. So you have to make sure in terms of your, um, your dues that you, if you're getting new technology, do I have the personnel mm. and the resources to manage this technology? And when I say manage to define that, I mean, collect the data, uh, manage and store the data and then report and visualize the data within your organization. So like making sure that that's something that can fit within the bandwidth. And I always like to say in that case, like a worst case scenario, because you can't rely on somebody. So think about if you're, if you're thinking about getting a tool and you're like, Oh, my insurance can do that. I always like to think about what a worst case scenario that you don't have any interns. Can you still collect that? Could you still use that, that technology? Could you still do it? And if not, then you're probably, you probably don't have an appropriate, the appropriate personnel and resources there. If, if, if you, if, if in your worst case scenario, what if this individual is going to do it and okay, well, what if that person's not there in that worst case scenario, could you still do it? If you can't, then I would say probably you don't have an, the appropriate personnel there. And I'll link that as a do to say a don't to that is don't sacrifice getting technology in place of getting people, mm. people before technology all the time. And I'm saying that as someone who's like, I'm no bigger fan of sports science, technology, you, getting data and information and use, but people over technology any day of the week, if you have a limited, if you have limited resources and you don't have um, the people that you need and you're, you're, you have the option. Sometimes you don't have the option, but I would always push for having the people versus technology. Um, that's, you know, uh, 
Josh Nelson, like we would talk about this all the time at Penn State because, you know, we up there, we push for, you know, they're, they're all the time wanting to get new, uh, new technology, new things up there. And, and for us, you know, we had talked about it all the time. We're like, let's push for position, a position, a new position, because we always want the people, the boots on the ground before the new technology. And I, that's part of having an appropriate infrastructure in place to collect data, collect information and be able to utilize it. So I would say the do is, is, is make sure you have and check the appropriate personnel and resources to manage it. And I would say, just my, me personally, I always like think worst case scenario, could on a worst case day, could I still do this? Can I still manage things? And then I don't, don't choose technology over people if you have the option of how to, to utilize those resources. Um, and then another one I would say a do is I would say, make sure that whatever technology you're getting before it ever gets there, before you ever purchase it to just make sure there's a documented process or system in place of what questions is this information going to answer? What gap in knowledge is this filling this technology? How is this technology's data going to be collected? How is that going to be repeated over time? If appropriate, how is that going to be scaled? So let's say you're getting catapult and your plan is to initially put it on 10 guys, but you want to use it on the whole team. Okay, how is that going to be done initially? And then how's that going to be scaled to the whole team if that's what I ultimately want to do? Mm-hmm. And uh, in a collegiate athletics, sometimes it's scaled to different sports, um, depending on the environment. It, like if you're a strength coach and work with multiple sports and you want a new technology to ultimately work with all the sports, like how is it going to be scaled? So the scalability of it. The, and then um, ultimately, or then next, uh, the management of data. So you're collecting data, let's say, this technology requires you to collect data every week. How are you going to manage this data over time and do it in an appropriate way? So securely and cleanly so that you can go back and do longer types of analyses on it. Um, what is that plan going to be like? And then finally, how are you going to re- to analyze it and report it in a way that doesn't take you away from, from, from what you need to get done on a day-to-day basis and that can be done in a way that makes it interpretable to help inform decision making because ultimately that's the ultimate goal is to help to make some more informed decisions around this information so what's that process going to be like for analyzing it and reporting it in a in a based on whatever frequency weekly daily whatever the technology is required to answer those questions so i would say having all of that in place prior to ever purchasing the technology or it arriving because that that is you what you don't want to be in and this is the don't on this one is the technology to get there. And then you're scrambling, figuring out how do I use this? How do I collect it? What am I going to do with it? Like what metrics should I look at? What, what, and because then you're in a, a lot of times what happens in, in practice is that this gets put onto a lower level strength coach. If you're in football and then they're scrambling because they don't want to disappoint their superior, even though they haven't been properly prepared and they're being put in a position to fail. And then, and then I can't tell you how many assistant strength coaches in football. And right now, a lot of them come from G5 that I'm getting calls from, texts from, hey, can you, I, we, we just got three force plates. I don't know what to do. Can you talk with me? How should I, how can I use this data? How can I use this information? What, what should metrics should I look at? I'm like, okay, we got to, and I, I, you know, but it's, it's, you, yeah, they're, you're right, they're, you're right, yeah. they're stressed and they're trying to figure out, they're like a, 
and and it's funny one of them said well now i've been made the sports scientist so the sports scientist on the staff and well if you don't it, that's great but if if you don't already have had been prepared to have to, 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 to do that task you're being put in a position to fail and so i think it's important to have all those questions answered prior to introducing the technology to you know if you're to be able to put you and, and your staff in a good position um, to be able to utilize the information. Um, because again, you don't want to be there scrambling, trying to figure out what is this technology going to be? How can we use this information in your, in the technology there? You're testing your athletes and you don't really know what you're going to do with the information. And then you're putting, obviously, then you're requiring your athletes to do things that aren't necessarily tied to some type of, of how are we going to do this? How are we going to use this information? Um, so, and then finally, I would say, um, appropriately vetting the technology within not only the company, but also within the literature. And yeah. so there's a lot of technology that'll come out that has no evidence base behind it. And that's okay. If you can link it to some type of, you can't always wait for a full body of research to come out before doing something, but it should be linked to some type of like physiological mechanism or rationale that makes sense that's rooted somewhere in some type of mechanistic at least literature um you you don't necessarily need a you know a meta-analysis saying that or like randomized controlled trials of utilizing a technology to be able to say okay this is appropriate but at the same time you should at least vet it somewhat throughout what do they say what what are they saying this does and if this is filling some kind of gap in knowledge and this technology is going to do that great but if there's not research around it and they can't then and you can't link it to some type of physiological rationale like this is what they're saying it does and how it does it is appropriate based on my understanding of physiology or whatever it is then there's something's not right and it should you don't i wouldn't waste your money on it because there's other types of technology that could probably bring benefit and that actually have evidence around them and their efficacy. And so I think that's just something to kind of consider. And what you, again, the don't on this one, pairing the don't on this one is I would say you, you don't want to just listen to a rep because you'll get, and, and whatever they tell you, take it as the gospel and then run with it and start utilizing it on your athletes because you're the safeguard to your athletes. Like Ooh. you could bring anything in there. And they're going to, tr they trust you, or yep. hopefully they trust you. And they're going to say, okay, like, if you're telling me this is appropriate, then you have my best interest in mind. You, you vetted, they trust that you vetted it. You, this is good for them. This is beneficial. Whatever information you're gaining from this is going to be utilized to help protect them and help make them better in, in terms of performance. And so they're, you're their safeguard. And so making sure that you that you properly vet this technology and that you, when you bring it in, all the homework's been done and that's that i think is, is very important because you don't just want to bring it in and, and you're trusting whatever rep that's you know that's their whatever they're telling you and then you're just running it with it because i think that is obviously is putting you and, and your athletes in a in a bad position <clears throat> how long is too long to be in the data collection mode because when you first get something like you you're essentially just data collection. Like, okay, we're going to get some force plates. Well, you got to see where your guys are at. Or even with catapult, you can't just get data and be like, oh, these numbers were high. And uh, da, 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 da. it's like, no, you need to start to see like, okay, what is it? It's, it's always an end of one within the team. Like 
it might be longer than coaches are comfortable with, in my opinion. What like because it, it's like I remember when we first got catapult. He's like, "What do these numbers mean?" I was like, "These are our numbers for right now. I'm not making recommendations right now. We're just gonna collect data and see, and then in a year, because we've actually like, and then, but let's see if we actually keep your same scheme. Let's see how we continue to evolve this. Like it's a work in progress. It's not just me being like, brah, brah, brah. yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Like, so what, with that being said, what would you recommend? Like how long, <laughs> yeah. how long do you think? Like, is it shorter? Is it longer? Is it balancing the fact of how quickly do you have to win? Like, what is it? I, I mean, I think it's, it's obviously dependent upon the type of technology, what questions you're trying to answer with it. Um, I, I would say that if you're in your example, and that's the one you hear a lot is uh, we got catapult, we got stats for whatever type of what positional tracking system. <laughs> we get this output of load numbers of speed, high speed running numbers, all these different things and being able to say, okay, what does this mean? How do you utilize it? Well, to your point, I think in terms of, from a head coach standpoint of practice design, things like that, it, you do have to collect it a little bit because scheme, um, practice structure, so many things can influence um, those numbers and those outputs, especially if you're looking at team averages, positional averages, generally, coaches want that you have individual numbers, but coaches want to like, but they immediately want to say, okay, what'd my team do today? And educating them around what these metrics mean and how they can be influenced very easily um, by certain factors is important. But I think to, to answer your question specifically is immediately what you can do is create, and this is right out of the gate is be able to create uh, kind of movement profiles for your guys based on the physical demands of the positions and within your coaching staff scheme. And so that's something that pretty quickly, depending what time of year, if you're in season, it's great because in season is pretty much the same. That's what you and, want, yeah. And so you can create, you can say, okay, coach, like this is, this is the profiles for our guys and picking the metrics that make sense based on the, based on the position. So for your skills, you know, you, you can put, you know, at, um, high speed running numbers, sprinting numbers, things like that. I, I generally like if positional, um, generally use like, um, 20 plus 18 plus 15 plus and categorize it like sprinting, high speed running, moderate speed running, things like that for skills. And that can, that's absolute. And then obviously track relative at the individual level relative to their maximal velocity, but like creating movement profiles to say, this is, you know, this is average, what our weekly average is for our wide receiver position group for 18 plus yardage. Yeah. And the reason that's one, it's giving the coach some immediate information to give them an idea. It's not going to be actionable really immediately. Like they're not going to make any immediate decisions or uh, uh, using that information most likely, but it's information you can provide them that's actually, oh, this is the profile of our guys. Now, how this could be immediately used is let's say you have an injury to a wide receiver. And so let's say it's a, let's say grade two hamstring. So it's going to keep them out a little bit, but not, you know, again, time course there, two, three weeks, let's say. Okay, so it's going to take them out to where they're not going to lose a lot of their chronic loading. Like they're not going to be deconditioned broadly from a football standpoint, but they're going to lose a lot. Of, like they're going to lose their exposure to higher velocities, power, rate of force development, those types of qualities within, uh, if it's three weeks within that time frame. So having an understanding around what their weekly demands are that they're going to be put under when they return, you can reverse engineer that process with an injured player using that information you just gained 
to help systematically build out what progressions might make sense based on their injury to get them back um, to those numbers. And at the same time, you might say then to the coach, hey, like we got this guy coming back. This is probably around the average you're going to be exposed to. Maybe we want to think on limiting reps for his first week back a little bit, understanding that he's going to be building up in a controlled non-chaotic environment with our sports med and then return to a chaotic non-controlled environment in football we probably want to reduce his physical output because generally those injuries if it's a hamstring in this particular case soft is going to probably be is probably going to happen in high speed running under fatigue um or deceleration but either way most likely under fatigue so let's limit maybe the reps a little bit to keep that number down and again like this is just i'm you know, giving an example here of maybe like this could be used across different injuries, like but immediately uh, conceptually based, you can create movement profiles and then use that information immediately to help return an athlete to the physical demands, prepare them for the physical demands that that they're going to have based on their position group in this case. And this could be if you've had the technology for a month, you could do this. And so that's that's something immediately. And that's why also I say that it's important to have good relationships and an understanding across these different disciplines, because a lot of times in the strength conditioning world, if you're bringing in technology, the way you're going to bring the most value initially is in collaboration with sports med in return to performance. Yes. And that that, yep. that value is is extremely important, not only for not only for for helping get that technology understood and how it can be utilized in that context, but also creating an understanding from administration around the value of that information. Because it's one thing to talk about performance and power and speed and practice, but it's another thing if you're talking, if you're getting into the medical world and talking about being able to better uh, return athletes from injury. Um, that's where, at least from my experience as administration, their ears perk up. Yeah. And they're seeing more of like, okay, this is, this is something that, that adds value in our, in the athletics department. And it speaks dollars and cents because it's like, Hey, if somebody gets hurt, that's money, that's a, that's surgeries. And it's like, Hey, if we could do this and then eventually spend less money on surgeries in the back end, like it helps them understand the dollars and cents of, you know, why they did what they did. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's, that's a whole, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head there. I think that's, and when you're getting into the collegiate environment and you're initially, people are having difficulty understanding why you need these technologies and what a sports scientist does. This is a great way to introduce them to some of the fundamental concepts around, um, you know, why you care about measuring external load or, or the, you know, these load metrics and why you care about how an athlete's responding to that given load and, and why, you know, why you need that information. How's it going to be utilized? And that's a quick, a, a, to your point, the timeline, that's a quicker way to, to see return on that investment and the, and to see it utilized um, to help inform decision-making processes. Mm -mm. Do you think there's going to be more and more of these roles eventually where it's like, you're almost the speed sports scientist because of like the number of things that a 1080 can put out. And then it like, is it going to get that hyper-focused to down to almost not the device, but like what the device is trying to measure, whether it's strength, power, speed, total on-field work, like could it evolve that much with all the different people for, and, and I'm talking now high level for the sports that have the bigger budget for it, but because if you can do it, why not, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you're going to, I think you're absolutely going to get to the point where I don't, I wouldn't say you're going to have necessarily a speed sports scientist, but I think you're going to have staffs that have a speed specialist and then they might be more apt to hire a sports scientist with more of a biomechanics speed background and, or have a speed development coach. Um, we're fortunate here to have, uh, Ryan Grubbs as director of speed development and his, I work a, a lot with him in different ways. He's a phenomenal coach period, but obviously his expertise around speed development, um, is, is next to none. And so he's a, he's our speed expert and then utilizing the technology, the 1080s, as far as data collection and things like that, like, you know, that's managed, you know, in my department. Um, with, with my staff, but like at the same time, um, it's not in isolation, like everything we do. And, and I'm saying the 1080 is, is kind of the, the entry point of what they did over, over, but obviously like we're, we're getting in that world now, even of the kinematics piece Ooh, yeah. of being able to like understand, okay, what, what they did in terms of output, but also the strategy they utilized to do oh, that output. Yeah. Exactly. Just like you think about on a, on a force plate right you know it's whatever they did exactly what was their counter movement depth how what did they do eccentrically and unweighting and breaking how did they do in the transition and then the propulsion like it's it's painting the picture of what they did sure but how did they do it same deal with sprinting and so now with with um you know kinematics pieces and things you can be have a at least a 2d understanding and then eventually 3d understanding um depending if you incorporate other technology there that's available into how they achieve what they did um, over, you know, a, a fly or a 20 yard acceleration or whatever it is. And so I think to your point, you, organizations are going there now. Um, and I think you're going to have someone on staff, whether it's a strength coach, who's a speed expert that has a fundamental understanding of the biomechanics around it and can apply that, that information, linking it to data collection and then the interpretability using it to coach from the mechanics side uh, standpoint and to program from an SNC standpoint to address anything you're going to see if they are using, okay, they're, they have, you know, poor reactivity in ground contact time. They spend too long on the ground or they over whatever they're, whatever you're seeing from a kinematic standpoint that maybe is going to predispose them to being in disadvantageous positions and movement you're going to address that or intervene. And so having the understanding of someone on your staff who can link the information from the data being captured to actionability intervention points, whether it's coaching mechanics and queuing, whether it's weight room intervention, whether it's plyometrics, whatever issue you're addressing, I think that that person, whatever they're housed as, I think you're going to see more and more of those folks getting hired. Absolutely. And I think that's, and, and that's, especially for first, you know, sports that are field based. And again, I'll, I'll speak specifically here in American football, but I, you're, you're definitely getting to that point where, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that's just, you, you keep seeing these experts in speed. A lot of places have them now, but I think it'll almost be like the norm that someone is going to be, uh, a, a, and I say speed development, but again, not only, knowing how to coach, but understanding how to take the data information and link that. That's what makes Ryan so great. There's a lot of great speed coaches out there, but what makes Ryan great is that he can coach it, but he also understands to link the data of what he's seeing and like how to use data and information. And like he can, he can, he can walk that, 
continuum to be able to ultimately get some type of, of response and, and change in his intervention to understanding what's going on in the data, how to collect the data. And that's what makes him so great at, at being, you know, a, a speed development coach and practitioner around biomechanics is because of his, his understanding across that, that spectrum, so to speak. And I think those are the types of individuals that you're going to see, I think more and more, uh, at higher with organizations, higher level organizations, even P5s that have eventually that have those budgets uh, around that. I think you'll see people hired. I know right now, if I was director, if someone put me in director of sports science at a, at a, at a major college football program, and I was starting a position there, I would be immediately, depending who was on SNC staff, if there wasn't someone in that, in that area that understood the data side of it too, because I, I think that's that's a piece that you can really move the needle. And plus, let's face it, like if you're working with football coaches, making athletes faster and being able to communicate like yeah. that's going to move the needle for them. Oh, you know, that just is. For as I personally continue to nerd out on this topic, I know that you can overlay game film with what happened on the actual, you know, um, desktop with your catapult. Is there a way that you eventually we'll be able to capture a 1080 rep and then be able to overlay like the visual of the rep with what the data is outputting or is that not possible yet you or, and again i'm saying is that like foreseeable in the future possibly i mean i think it will be we do not have i mean and i'm speaking here like we don't do anything like that but i mean they're um as far as the i'm not sure the technology there around that in terms of like, if there are places that have that are, are moving towards that, or if that's possible right now, that's, that's kind of um, beyond something that beyond the scope of something that I'm aware of. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately, and to be honest, I think ultimately you're going to get away from even the catapult un units to where it's, it's Ooh. video technology yeah. down, down the line. I think the, the units are going to, to, um, to be obsolete. Uh, eventually um but i you know again i that's just if i had to if i had to put money on it um i would think we're, we'd eventually in the next i don't know if i would put the time i'd say probably 10 12 years i mean uh, it's interesting you that. say that though because what craddock said at that football conference two years ago um down at whatchamacallit at A&M they're able to like take a recruits film be able to break it up frame per second and be able to talk about how well of an accelerator they are by using the frames per second of somebody's recruit film and so that kind of leads into what you're saying where like maybe you don't need the GPS monitored anymore because the film has become so breakdownable with the frames per second huh. yeah well, no I appreciate I've taken up a lot of your time I, I appreciate you sharing and um helping educate myself and the other strength coaches. You have a game in two days. So best luck against the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, and again, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing and being honest. I told you before, you got a Houston Texans fan of me, brother. So keep kicking some butt. I appreciate it, Justin. And, and if, if anyone wants to reach out or anything like um, I'm, you know, social media, um, email, anything like that. Um, and uh, Mark T. Lewis, um, on Twitter, Instagram, and then, um, my, um, my email, Dr. Mark Lewis at Gmail. If you want to reach out, connect, I'm always more than happy to chat about, um, training, sports science, data, anything like that. Um, and, uh, I always like talk shop and connect with people. And so if anyone's 
wants to reach out, interested in chatting, uh, anything like that, I'm always happy to do that. Mm -mm. Sounds good, man. Have a great, uh, excuse me, have a great rest of your day. You too. Appreciate it.